from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Tuesday, October the 6th, and uh, we have a good full show lined up for you today. Uh, lots of news relating to uh, abortion politics in the United States of America, and uh, to some extent here in Vermont as well. Uh, remember that uh, this past legislative session, uh, lawmakers approved a, an amendment to the Constitution of the state of Vermont, uh, making a, a Vermont a, a state constitutional right. Uh, that is going to be before lawmakers again in the uh, 21-22 session of the legislature and then would be put to voters uh, for a statewide referendum following uh, that next legislative uh, biennium if, in fact, it passed. So... You could say that abortion politics very much on the ballot this November as as uh, Vermonters go to the polls to elect new lawmakers or re-elect the current lawmakers, etc. The uh, other aspect, of course, of to uh, on the national front is that Amy Coney Barrett is uh, President Trump's nominee for the United States Supreme Court. Her nomination is currently pending before the Senate, and uh, there has been some reporting oh, just over the last few days that uh, she has a quite a clear and public record of essentially wanting to restrict abortion rights and and uh, chip away at Roe versus Wade if not eliminate it altogether. We thought it would be uh, a good uh, morning on which to discuss all of this and wanted to get uh, a range of perspectives, as we like to do here on the Dave Graham Show. So we're going to be speaking first with... Uh, Mary Bearworth, she is a longtime advocate with uh, Vermont Right to Life, uh, a group which opposes abortion. And then uh, Lucy Lurish from Planned Parenthood will be joining us in the second half hour. She is a... Uh, She's with uh, Northern New England Planned Parenthood, uh, obviously advocates um, continuation of abortion rights. And um, so that should be an interesting set of conversations in the first hour. In the uh, second hour, we're going to switch it up and talk about education, and particularly a program called Destination Imagination, which uh, works to enhance the education our young people are getting in Vermont's schools. And uh, Jane Youngbear with Destination Imagination, Imagination will be joining us in that second hour to tell us all about what's up with that program and how how it is uh, coping with the current COVID-19 crisis. So uh, obviously we always welcome uh, calls from our listeners as well. So 244-1777 is the local number here in Waterbury. The toll-free number is one 877 Two nine one eight two five five, and let's bring in uh, Mary Beerworth. She's uh, with us on the telephone. And uh, Mary, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Good morning, Dave. Thank you for having me. I hope glad, you can hear me. Glad to do it. So. Okay. Let's talk about the, the state stuff first, and then we'll get to uh, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and et cetera uh, in a few minutes. But uh, are, are you, is your group advocating uh, with folks to pay attention to this constitutional amendment as they consider whom to vote for uh, for Vermont House and Senate seats next month? Oh, yes, we're absolutely looking at Proposal 5. Um so, so just to, I'll take just a minute. I'm the executive director of the Vermont Right to Life Committee, and our mission is to uphold the sanctity of human life from the moment of, con- 
of conception based on the science that is indisputable that life begins at conception. Through to a newborn uh, baby left to die in hospitals, which happens in this country and in this state, and to the end of life um, fighting against uh, positions of suicide and euthanasia. So that's our purpose, that's our mission. And so, of course, Proposal 5 falls under our purview. It is a uh, oddly worded <laughs> amendment to our state constitution, and it's, it's important that people understand what it could mean to Vermont to, to alter our state's constitution for the first time in decades, um, if not longer, with the language that is proposed. And if you'd like, I can read that language to you. Sure. Why don't you go ahead and do that? That an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. So please understand that that is gobbledygook for abortion, but more than abortion. Now, Planned Parenthood worked with our Attorney General over the summer before this language was proposed, and it was developed and worked on in cahoots. Pretty much Planned Parenthood has had the Attorney General's office on retainer for both H-57, which confirmed in statute that abortion would be legal through all nine months of pregnancy in Vermont, no restrictions, no regulations, no exceptions. And... um, and, and, and another interesting thing and fascinating as we watched the debate in the Senate Health and Welfare Committee, they altered and changed the language number of times throughout the testimony as different testimony and, and witnesses uh, drew out the problems that were involved. And only a half an hour before this language was put on the calendar for debate in the Senate, they were still making changes, just a half an hour before so it, it's uh, dangerous to do such a thing, to open the Vermont Constitution up to language that is not clear. Another very interesting point for your readers, for your listeners, is that the Attorney General, the Legislative Council, the ACLU, and Vermont Right to Life all agreed that abortion should be clearly stated, either in the amendment language itself or in the purpose, and the committee declined to do so. One other important point is that since the language has passed for the first time, and it will have to be passed again by a majority, uh, Planned Parenthood public affairs organizer stated um, it, this language will open up a whole range of different questions for future lawmakers, like what does protect, protecting reproductive autonomy mean? And it, it'll be a fascinating conversation for years to come. So the intent is to constantly change what that meaning is of personal reproductive autonomy, and the answer to questions we raised in committee uh, came back invariably, the courts will decide. Why not? Why would there be a, a reluctance to be clearer about this? I don't, I, I don't understand. What do you understand the motivation for that might be? Uh, I, I don't. Uh, we suspect that they want many things from this language. Uh, since the language was passed, it was all about abortion in uh, 2019 and, and uh, 2020. But now Planned Parenthood is saying it means a whole host and variety of different complex meanings. So when you do have Planned Parenthood on, please do ask uh, why we couldn't be more clear. If abortion was the intent, why isn't abortion anywhere in the purpose or anywhere in the um, the actual language. I mean, I, I suppose the uh, 
definition of reproductive autonomy does sound like this this pretty much age old argument now that even if we don't personally approve of abortion or ever want to get one or etc we don't believe that the government has a role here and therefore the individual should have the decision making power that sounds like reproductive autonomy doesn't it yes it does but what else could it mean it's not clear language as i said it the language was changed just up to a half an hour before placed on the calendar so uh it's going to be a cautionary tale for vermonters the, the Constitution is not supposed to be a designer tool for those who have special interests. Now, Vermont, is, I want to be very clear. Vermont has legalized abortion in statute now under H-57. Right. It has all the protection it needs. And I want to be very clear about one other thing before your Planned Parenthood guest comes on. Planned Parenthood has more clinics per capita here in the state of Vermont than any state in the United States. We, there, we have dropped the number of abortions through education to 1,200 abortions a year here in Vermont. When I first started, there were 3,500 abortions and more in a year. Now, of the 1,200, Planned Parenthood is boastful that they do 1,100 abortions. So when they come into the state house with all the power and might of their lobbying dollars, which are considerable, and their ability to twist arms on the floor of the house, um, they are actually using the state house to protect their business. They are in the business of abortion. And they were able to come in. Lucy LaRiche was the former majority leader on the floor of the house for years. And um, Jill Karwinski is a former uh, Planned Parenthood employee. So they combined those are, um, those are uh, some pretty powerful forces to be reckoned with. So when when the uh, Planned Parenthood folks are in the building, you said uh, protecting their business or whatever. How how is that different from anybody else lobbying in the state house? I mean, Green Mountain Power sends lobbyists to the building. Uh, you know, all the bank the Bankers Association. I mean, this is a very common thing, isn't it? Um, I think it's uh, they came in, and it would be more like, to me, like Ben and Jerry's coming in and saying, yeah, yeah, regulate every other medical procedure, uh, every other uh, ice cream manufacturer, but not us. Um, so they got a bill that protects very specifically their business. Now, yeah, sure, you can come down and lobby and, and try, but I want to be clear with Vermonters that this is a, driven by those who consider abortion uh, beyond and outside what most Vermonters consider abortion. So they, I, I will tell this whole story. They uh, kicked off a Roe v. Wade rally in the State House in Room 11. And when it got started and underway, it was led with a cheer. Who loves abortion? And the answer from the crowd was, we do, we do. That's not what our polling shows us where most Vermonters are on abortion. They are very concerned that we balance the life of that unborn child, that human child with a beating heart, a heart that has been beating just since 21 days after conception, 21 days. Now, you can't hear it until six weeks, but at 21 days, that little heart is circulating blood and beating regularly. So they don't want to hear, we do, we do, and we love abortion. They don't want abortion used as just another method of family planning, but that's not who Planned Parenthood is. Planned Parenthood feels abortion is another method of family planning. If you're 
purpose is to protect abortion rights. And you, you mentioned a moment ago that we already have Vermont statute on this H57, which passed in, in uh, last year, 2019. Uh, wouldn't you want to have the additional protection of have it being codified in the state constitution because a statute can be changed from year to year by the legislature uh, or at least from biennium to biennium and the constitution is much more difficult to change so it would you'd have additional protection uh for these rights do you do you uh do you understand uh i mean does that make sense as a as a strategy if you believe uh in abortion rights going on but the constitution should never be used in, in such a manner. As Tim asked that on the floor of the Senate, passing this into our Constitution inscribes in granite that abortion rights throughout pregnancy are unassailable. It would take a big effort to get it out. But we're talking about... So, so the Constitution is for basic fundamental rights. And as we move viability back further and further, people are beginning to come to that understanding that we need to protect human lives. We're saving babies. They're viable at 21, 22, and 23 weeks, weighing even under a pound. So we are going to place in the Vermont Constitution, sure Planned Parenthood wants to do that, that, that we cannot protect those viable babies. That's what will be in our Constitution. And so we are going to have a huge job ahead of us educating about what that really means. But there's one more thing I need to say further. Planned Parenthood, as soon as they had their success with H-57 and the first passage of Proposal 5, they announced that they were going to share, that they were going to be a shining example for other states to follow, so that all states will begin to uh, put abortion into their constitution. And and not just a, it's not just a local need and that they're responding to, they're playing a game of a national agenda. What, what other states have taken this up since then, any? Uh, Maryland uh, tried to take it up, and they were defeated. And and, that's and the, the uh, so and that's the only one so far. Yes. Well, I I would say <laughs> they're not being supremely successful then, because obviously, I mean, I know that many times, and, and this goes for a lot of different lobbying groups. All, again, there are many times multi-state sort of a, a, attacks on whatever issue you have, if it's uh, something where they want a, a big change in, say, insurance regulations or something, it'll it'll suddenly pop up in 15 or 20 states, and if they get six or seven to pass leg- similar legislation, that's a big win for whatever national lobbying group is out there advocating for something. So it doesn't, frankly, surprise me that much that this would be happening here, especially when everyone nationwide understands that, Abortion rights and abortion are national issues. I mean, they are certainly not unique to Vermont, and and so I uh, I guess. But it it's also interesting to to hear from you that the efforts in other states have not been as uh, shall we say successful so far. I mean, Vermont uh, has the uh, statutory H fifty seven and passage by strong majorities in both houses of the legislature of this constitutional amendment. Um, so what are what are you trying to do to uh, influence the outcome, say, of uh, next month's le- legislative elections here in Vermont uh, to to uh, change course here, I guess? Well, uh, we we have a political committee, and we every year it's, it's our uh, um, our task to inform our membership who the best candidates are. 
Uh, we support candidates who are fully pro-life, but also candidates that support hard for all of our agenda, legislative agenda, or simply right now would vote no on uh, proposal five. Now, that's, we are not a well-moneyed player. We do not receive any taxpayer dollars. In fact, all of our money is raised by some pro-life Vermonters who support what we do. Uh, I used to be able to say that, but now there are some former Vermonters who've moved out of state and still support us. So we get some donors from out of state, but they had a connection to Vermont. And so it's, it's a, it's a principled thing for our membership. They do not want to cast a vote for, uh, an pro-abortion candidate. Mary, I'm, one, I'm wondering uh, your sense of of how this is uh, catching on or not among Vermonters. Uh, do you feel like uh, this is a uh, uh, a campaign that you are mounting that is finding receptive ears out there? Well, I would like to correct a few things that you said. Um, we are pro-life, and so what we are essentially and wholly about is reducing the number of abortions because women have better options and alternatives and are supported in carrying their babies to term. Yes, we would like some restrictions and regulations on the business of abortion, but the goal is changing the culture to a culture of life, where the number of abortions, legal or illegal, is zero. And that we have been making progress on and we will continue to. So we are in the business of information, informing people about what abortion really means, what it does, and the after effects and the grief that many women experience. So, um, yes, and so the same approach will be taken to proposal side. We will keep telling the truth. We will keep documenting for the history books what the other side is saying. And we will just continue to do our job until the day when every human life is respected and protected. Okay, let's go to a listener who's on the line, Ruth from Sheldon. Good morning. Yes, Dave, I think people need to be responsible for their actions. And if we vote this constitutional change in, what it really means is we as a people in the state of Vermont think it's a constitutional right to be able to kill our children before they are born, our Vermont babies. And that is what this proposal says. Plain, well, it's not plain and simple. It's, it is gobbledygook, like Mary said. But this is what it's saying, that we as a people, and we will be responsible for changing the Constitution to say that. And I don't want that at all. Thank okay, you. thanks for the call. Ruth, appreciate it. Let's go to Bobby and Randolph. Good morning, Bobby. Hi, Bobby. Um, I think there's two things are going to happen out of this a lot more. Um, doctors will either rename the word abortion to something else and still perform them, or they'll have your back alley abortion clinics going on. Um, I do believe if, that the baby should be aborted if there's a medical reason for it, or if the, mo- or if the, the mother is, is just got to the point where she has too many children and needs to have it. But otherwise, I think that, you know, um, for the abortion, if it's a bunch of teenager girls going into a going into a hospital and getting abortions because they don't want the baby they're carrying, and then they go back out and get pregnant again, that's a medical problem for them because sooner or later it will affect their uterus. Okay, thanks for the call, Bobby. Appreciate it. D from Duxbury, what's on your mind this morning? Hi. Well, that sounds like uh, check check eugenics to me, but um. My husband and I adopted our children. Uh, 
abortion does kill a, a child, a human child. I mean, it's not questionable now. It's science. Believe in science, right? Um, and I think this is a... Abortion is terrible. Look at the demographics of the United States, of Vermont, of Europe, of uh, Japan. Japan is a dying nation. They kill their babies. I mean, this is, it's true. These are facts, numbers. You, You can't. You can't, I mean, I suppose you can argue with numbers, but they're there. All right. Well, i got to jump, but I appreciate it very much, uh, your call, Dee. Thanks, Thanks for checking in. Hey, Thank you, because that's very pertinent to Vermont. Since 1972, when abortion was legalized in Vermont, we have aborted over 100,000 babies in the state of Vermont. And you will hear Phil Scott often saying we need an influx of 100,000 people. United States, so it's an economic issue as well. Mary uh, Beerworth, uh, you know, I, I regret one thing, which is that we, uh, we've we we're almost out of time here. Just we, we, very quickly, what are your thoughts about the uh, Amy Coney Barrett nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court? I gather you support that nomination? I do, and I'm excited as a woman about Amy Coney Barrett. I feel like it's out with the old feminism and in with the new. She is a woman who has not given up her career or her family. She has been responsible with her life, and she has even extended her success to adopting two children. So I feel like it's a new day, and, and uh, I think she's remarkable, and I think the country will be well served by her appointment to the Supreme Court. All right. Well, Mary Beerworth, thank, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us this morning. And as I mentioned, folks, after the bottom of the hour break here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV, we're going to be hearing from Lucy Larish of Planned Parenthood. Might uh, hear some uh, counter arguments here. That's uh, what we do on the Dave Graham Show. And uh, we just have a minute to go, which is enough time for me to do a couple things. One is to remind everyone that after the show today, a little after 11 o'clock, that is, after the CBS News, we go live to our special coverage of one of the regular news conferences headed up by Governor Phil Scott, where he'll have other state officials with him talking about the state's response to the COVID-19 crisis. It's some, uh, something we've been carrying for months now here on WDEV. The news conferences are Tuesdays and Fridays at 11. That's when the governor convenes them, and we are uh, bringing them to our listeners live. And so you can don't have to touch that dial at the end of the Dave Graham Show this morning. You just stay right with WDEV. And uh, we will be back after a uh, bottom-of-the-hour break for some CBS News. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. 
We are back, and my next guest is Lucy Larish. She is with Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. Uh, we just heard from uh, Mary Beerworth with the Vermont Right to Life Committee. Our aim this morning is to sort of get caught up on where things stand with a uh, proposed constitutional amendment here in Vermont, which would protect reproductive rights in the state, and uh, also uh, find out what uh, folks are thinking and doing in connection with the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Trump. That nomination is pending before the U.S. Senate. Hearings are expected upcoming once uh, the Senate gets past this uh, crisis related to COVID-19. And uh, we will uh, see what unfolds in the coming weeks on that front. Uh, Lucy Larish is with us on the telephone. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Dave. I'm happy to be here. And so tell us what uh, Planned Parenthood is uh, thinking about the upcoming, particularly legislative elections in Vermont. I would gather that you're hoping that the legislature will have a similar makeup in its coming uh, two-year biennium when it would uh, likely pass uh, for a second time this amendment to the state constitution and then put it before voters in uh, November of uh, 22. Uh Tell us uh, yeah. what's, what's happening from your perspective. Yeah, sure. So in the last legislative session, we had overwhelming support for the constitutional amendment. In the Senate, there are 30 members, and 28 of them, 28 out of 30, voted to advance this. We, the, and in the House, there were, um, there were similarly, uh, there are 150 members, and I don't remember the exact vote, but there was, it was um, 100 and 37, I believe, who voted in favor. That's so, pretty overwhelming support. Oh, sorry, and sorry, 107. Uh, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, now I'm not remembering the numbers. But yes, overwhelming support in both chambers. And this, just by uh, virtue of the way Vermont passes constitutional amendments, they have to clear this hurdle twice. They have to, they have to be approved by the legislature in two successive biennia, and then they go to the uh, to the voters, um, I would gather with that overwhelming support in this uh, this just concluded legislative session that you're pretty confident that you'll see something similar in the coming legislative session. Yeah, we believe we will. And, in fact, we've just completed our endorsement process for the Planned Parenthood Vermont Action Fund Independent Expenditure Pack. And and with, through that endorsement process, we have identified and endorsed over about 140 candidates for statewide and legislative races in Vermont. These are all people who are legis- have demonstrated that they are legislative, that they are reproductive rights champions. And we are so we are hoping for a similar result in after the elections, and um, so that we can move forward with this constitutional amendment into the next legislative biennium. What do you actually do in sort of this time of the cycle? We have a, the election is just a little less than a month away. And so what does Planned Parenthood do uh, in terms of just trying to uh, get folks reelected whom you like or get new people in there if you uh, feel that's the thing to do? Yeah, you mean how do we do it? Like what kind yeah. of activities? Do are you doing phone banks or are you doing door knocking yeah. or are you uh, just yeah. writing letters? To you? I mean, what are the sort of techniques that are applied Every- here? Yeah, yeah, everything is on the table. <clears throat> the first thing we do is we publish our um, our endorsements on our website and we um, mock up social media creatives so that we can push out um, images of 
endorsed candidates to let people know that these people are endorsed. And we also make sure that we communicate with our supporter base. We have many people who are signed up as supporters with the Planned Parenthood Vermont Action Fund track, um, doing with our political work. And we just let them all know who our endorsed candidates are so that they can make a decision based on what they feel is um, is right for them, if they care about, and these are all people who care about reproductive rights. So we, that's the first layer. And then we look at races. We, we look at all races across the state, and we decide where we want to spend the, you know, put more energy. But yeah, we use all those, all those methods of, of communicating with voters, letters to the editor, phone banks, we um, are not doing door-to-door this year. We're not doing canvassing for obvious reasons, but we may we may decide to do lit drops or or other means of um, getting the word out to people about the candidates that we have endorsed and how they stand on reproductive rights. Uh, H57, which was passed, I believe, in the first half of this just completed by biennium, was it 2019? Uh, mm-hmm. That codified in Vermont law that uh, people have access to legal access to abortion in the state. Why push further to a constitutional amendment? What is, uh, what's the purpose here? Well, the H-57 was focused primarily on, on abortion rights, and that's in state statute. We feel like because reproductive rights are so clearly under attack right now nationally, and we see the change in the U.S. Supreme Court right now, the Roe v. Wade decision was a decision that made it illegal for states to pass laws that would res- that would um, keep someone from obtaining an abortion. They it determined that every every American who can get pregnant has the right to an abortion under the the privacy clause of the U.S. Constitution. So right now there are more than there are 17 cases that are from the lower courts that are that are on their way to the U.S. Supreme Court around reproductive rights and around unlawful, in many cases, unlawful um, state laws that are on their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We expect, with the nomination of Amy Coney Bryant, that that will clearly tip the scales um, away from um, Roe v. Wade, and we will see very likely that Roe v. Wade will be overturned with that if if Trump gets another Supreme Court justice appointment. Remember, Trump has vowed to re- to appoint um, Supreme Court justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. This is something that he has said publicly and clearly. And Amy Coney Bryant is no exception. And we had before this we Amy had, Coney Barrett, um, I believe it is. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Bryant? Yeah, <laughs> Barrett. Yes, that's okay. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yep. <clears throat> Thank you, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so with this nomination. Um, the Trump administration is making it is making it very clear that this is a, a move that they want to make. Once once um, Roe v. Wade is overturned, states will have free reign to pass laws that would um, make abortion illegal. So, in other words, the decisions will go to the states. That's why in Vermont we just feel like it's very important that we we preserve this right that Vermonters have had for over forty years. In the Vermont State Constitution, it's the highest law of the land for us in Vermont, and it's um, in this moment in history and time. I think warrants 
um, taking this action to protect Vermonters, the future future generations of Vermonters. Well, I yeah, and I and I sort of sense that right now with the passage of H fifty seven and the strong majority in the House and Senate supporting the uh, constitutional amendment in this past biennium, and we expect will be similar result in the coming biennium. That this is a time when the political makeup of Vermont would lean strongly toward uh, reproductive rights, et cetera, uh, and that that could change in the, in in the future. And and you could bet that there are uh, Republicans dreaming of the day that it will <laughs> in the coming yeah, decades yeah. or whatever. So uh, this is uh, this is your chance uh, right now to get this codified in the Constitution. I mean, am I, is that analysis make sense? Yeah, sure, it makes sense. I mean, all you have to do is um, study a little history, and we see swings between parties and who holds power through time. And I know at one moment in time it can be hard to have the imagination to think that it would be different in 10 or 20 or 50 years, but we know from history that that's not the case. In fact, I mean, I think Roe v. Wade is a great example. I think no one really believed that... um, Americans would lose reproductive rights, especially because more than 70% of the U.S. population believes that people should have abortion rights and that people should be able to access safe, legal abortion. This is the vast majority of Americans. I mean, there's no other issue that with with, um, better popularity, Congress, you can look at polls from Congress, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, no one has numbers like 70%. So this is despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of Americans support the right to a safe, legal abortion. We are in a moment in history where we are about to see that right go away. So, yeah, absolutely. We don't know what the future brings, and that's why we need to put in as many protections as we can when we can. Does it ever bother you that uh, we've had this sort of political makeup in our country for the past, really since the passage of uh, the issues of the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973, where the there's a strong motivation within one of our two parties to try to overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, and and they've had some electoral success in enough parts of the country that, for instance, there's now a Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. Uh, we have a Republican president, obviously. Uh, and a lot of that seems to be, in no small part, driven by abortion politics in the country. But then it comes with things like, oh, you know, erosion of labor rights or 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 redu- reductions in environmental protections and these other issues that sort of follow along uh what do you what do you make of that and and is is abortion sort of the uh the the key linchpin issue here that has uh, really steered our politics uh through these decades well i think it's been it's it's been a wedge issue i think that um I just want to remind your your listeners who may not know this, but um, abortion is a wedge issue, and as a as a officially adopted um, anti-abortion as an as an officially adopted Republican Party platform um, issue is really very recent. Our PAC is nonpartisan. We know that um, abortion rights is something that all party people of all parties support. However, 
The um, the the Republican Party only sent only recently in in U.S. history decided to adopt anti-abortion policies as a, as a platform. It's a it's a it's a very strong wedge issue, and so are race issues. Issues of race have also been a wedge issue for. Um, you know, for in the part in the battle for party power. So yeah, I think I think it's um, I think it's definitely been used and abused by the people with power to try to get more power historically. Absolutely. Let's go to uh, our telephone lines. We have a listener calling in, Eileen from Jericho. Good morning, Eileen. Hi. Um, I just wanted to. Uh, clarify something. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, um, but she said that 70% of um, Americans support abortion rights. Um, it depends on how the question is asked. Um, I think it's about the same amount. I, I, I recall it being a pretty significant amount of Americans believe in some restrictions to that abortion right. They do not believe in full-fledged um, 100% abortion rights up to birth with no exceptions. And I'm, I'm sorry I don't have those fingertips at my hands, but maybe, um, you know, Mary Bira can get those to you at some point um, or you know, if I can find them. Um, so what Vermonters need to understand is that this, both the stage 57, uh, the law that just passed, um, and also the amendment um, have absolutely... No restrictions. And if I recall, um, even Vermonters believe there should be some restrictions in the, in the polling. It depends on how the way the questions are asked. I think most people are going to say, yeah, I'm pro-choice, but I believe in restrictions you know, when they ask uh, more specific questions. So what you know, Vermonters need to understand is this constitutional amendment has absolutely no restrictions to abortion. It doesn't matter what the age of the uh, baby in the womb um, up until birth. Now, I know that they say, oh, that never happens. That's baloney. It does happen. And, you know, it, it's, I don't know, you know, it, but so if that's the case, then why not put a cap on it? You know, why not say past 20 weeks, um, it will be illegal? You know, if it doesn't happen, then why isn't there a cap of some sort? Um, and the other thing um, I wanted to say is in the law, that can be changed. If, if some, you know, time goes by and, um, they say, you know what, we, we think we really need restrictions. They can put it in there. Once the constitutional amendment is in there, it makes it extremely difficult to change that. So, so the monitors are going to be stuck with no restrictions forever until, you know, it's obviously it's a much more cumbersome um, effort to change the Constitution. So Vermonters need to really be aware of that. You know, the law is one thing. It's fluid. It can change. The Constitution is not so easy. Eileen, do you, do you know, or can you tell me whether your understanding of whether abortions occurred before the issuance of the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973? Um, no, I can't. I'm sorry, I don't have that knowledge. Um, okay. Well, uh, thanks for the call. Uh, I appreciate uh, you checking in with us. Can I add one more thing? Sure. Um, the Munchers also need to understand. Um, I have a daughter with Down syndrome. About three-quarters of um, babies that are diagnosed in utero are aborted because they have Down syndrome. This is a population who are the most beautiful people in the world, and um, women think that this is a reason for abortion. 
and it's you know about a third of the population of Down syndrome has been. And there's studies on that that um, have been estimated that a third of that population has been um, wiped out. You know, there should be 30 percent more people with um, Down syndrome in this world. And you know, so it's it has like a, a, it has a uh, more than just the woman affected. It affects our society. That's awesome. Thank you for the time. Okay, thank you, Eileen. Lucy LaRouche of Planned Parenthood, I, I want to ask you a question. Mary uh, Beerworth raised it toward the end of the last segment, which does go to demographics. And is, is there anything to an argument that, you know, one of the reasons that there are fewer Vermonters than some folks who want there to be living in the state these days is because we've had whatever number of abortions we've had in the past 40 years? I have, I, there's no way that I can speculate about something like that. We know that abortion is widespread across the country. People have been getting abortions before it was legal, after it was legal. This is a reality of life. People, um, people will get abortions whether it's legal or not. I do want to res- respond to something that your caller that Eileen just mentioned, and that is this whole notion of, of, well, first, to, um, the, the point about um, the polling, the, the 70% number is referring to the question, do you support safe ac- um, access to safe legal abortion? So that is that the 70% number, or more than 70% number, comes from that question. And this whole notion, we've also seen polling numbers about this, this idea of abortion up, into, up until birth, which is, um, it really, we have partnered, or we are um, with the Vermont Medical Society because the Vermont Medical Society understands that the doctor-patient relationship is very important, and that uh, that terminations of pregnancy that happen later in pregnancy are because of really complicated, heartbreaking, difficult situations, and. Um, Fetal, fetal anomalies and all kinds of um, things you wouldn't wish on anyone. And I've also seen polling that says, do you find this notion of abortion up until birth a credible statement? And the, major, the vast majority of people say no. They do not find that a credible statement. I think most people know that that is a talking point by anti-abortion activists to try to scare people away and try to horrify people into thinking that people are doing, you know, the unthinkable. And that is committing, you know, some kind of atrocities. But, um, in fact, we know from the data that um, less than, that a very, very small percentage, I think it's like 1% of um, terminations happen, that happen later in pregnancy, First of all, that, that, that's when they, that um, very few terminations happen later in pregnancy, and those that do are because of severe, um, because of um, instances that are, that are incompatible with life. A fetus that is incompatible with life is, some, is some, one of the lang- some of the language that is used in the medical field. Okay. Um, so I just want to caution your, your listeners to... Um, some of these some of these points that are coming from anti-abortion activists and the uh, 
passage in Vermont, at least initially, of a constitutional amendment. Uh, it would have to clear the legislature again in the uh, next biennium and then be voted on in a statewide referendum. This is a constitutional amendment which would codify in our state's uh, founding document uh, the, the idea that uh, re- reproductive rights uh, will not be uh, restricted. Reproductive autonomy, I believe, is the phrase Lucy LaRiche. And in our first half hour, Mary Beerworth of uh, Vermont Right to Life was complaining that that, that seemed awfully vague to her. Why not? Why not use the word abortion in that constitutional amendment? Yeah, because the the reality is that reproductive reproductive autonomy, bodily autonomy, and reproductive liberty is something that is really on the line. It's at risk right now. We see um, the Trump administration, for example, allowing uh, an exemption for employers to offer contraception coverage and health insurance. We are in a in a weird place right now in this country where things that we have taken for for granted for many decades are suddenly um, under threat. And so the constitutional amendment is broad. The language is um, not specific to abortion because the amendment is broader than that. It's to allow someone to to get pregnant, to get pregnant and carry that pregnancy um, to 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 term. It's to allow people to access or refuse contraception and to access or refuse sterilization. We know that um, the world is changing all the time, and these are rights that we currently have and that we, we're seeing how very clearly in sharp relief that we cannot take any of these rights for granted. The... Uh that is an interesting idea, a thought, thought there that we have had periods in our history and there are places in the world when these periods have cropped up, uh, more recently than even here in the United States in which women, essentially pregnant women have been encouraged to have abortions or directed to have abortions. Uh, I would gather that this amendment would prevent any such thing. I mean, the one aim is to prevent any such thing from ever coming to pass here in Vermont. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. This is about protecting someone's right to carry their pregnancy to term and give birth to their baby if that's what they choose. It's about reproductive autonomy. This is not just about protecting abortion. This is not, um, this is not an abortion, just an abortion only issue. This is about people being able to, to call the shots with their own lives and their own bodies around how, you know, what, what they want to do. If someone wants some, Sterilization procedure, fine. If someone refuse, does not want a sterilization procedure, that cannot be forced upon them. Well, that is about all the time we have. Uh, appreciate you joining me this morning. Lucy Larish uh, from Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. It's always good talking with you, and uh, thank you very much. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate you having me on your show. All righty. We're going to go to a top-of-the-hour break for some CBS News, and we'll be back very shortly, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. 
Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We're back. Thanks for staying with us into the second hour of our program on this uh, Tuesday morning, October the 6th, 2020. October the 6th means that uh, we are only uh, 27 or 28 days from the November third election day and of course uh, we uh, really no longer should think about it as election day this is more election season with all the uh, early voting that has been going on here in vermont and around the country it is really becoming uh, quite a uh, quite a phenomenon in this election for folks to get their ballots early they're being mailed their ballots in most states and uh, many folks are filling them out and either mailing them back or uh taking them right down to a polling place and dropping them off at a city or town clerk's office here in Vermont and and elsewhere around the country, the boards of elections, offices, and so on. Uh, some states and cities have set up drop boxes, sort of like the old-fashioned mailbox where you would deposit a letter, except these are specially set up for to take in ballots, and then the uh, officials come by and collect those ballots and we uh we're going to have a an unusual election this year the aim in most places is to keep long lines from happening on election day uh people voting in person will obviously be standing in those lines uh we hope all masked up and maintaining their social distance but still there is an increased risk there of coronavirus uh, infection spreading and we do not uh, want to see that obviously uh, speaking of the coronavirus, the big news there, of course, is that uh, President Donald Trump was released from the hospital at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center yesterday and made his way back to the White House. Uh, caught a little bit of grief from critics who were annoyed with him for removing his mask as he entered the White House. Uh, remember, this is a workplace for many people, the, and uh, with President Trump walking into the building, uh, clearly uh, suffering himself from the coronavirus, uh, there was worry that perhaps he could be uh, spreading it just while he walked around without a mask. There's also the, the uh, question of uh, sort of what example does this set for uh, the, the regular folks out there across America. Here at uh, WDEV, we're still required to uh, wear masks when entering the building here. Everybody gets a temperature taken in the morning. And I, I suspect that many, many other workplaces, in fact, I understand from people I know who work in other workplaces, that that's a pretty part, pretty much part of the daily routine, a little, uh, little COVID check every morning as people arrive at work. And then in other instances, people are still working at home. Uh, because if they have jobs that allow them to do that, they are, uh, it's just all a, always a matter of trying to, um, minimize the risk of transmission of the, of the COVID-19 virus. Also, uh, the risk of, obviously, of catching the COVID-19 virus. So that's something that, uh, many people still need to, uh, focus on and everybody does, really. We've had Tracy Dolan, the Deputy Health Commissioner here in Vermont on the uh, Dave Graham show. Uh, a number of times now, and it's a consistent message from her 
don't let your guard down. This is uh, not something that is, has some kind of an arc where it wears out over time. Uh, so far, we are still as much at risk for a flare-up in the COVID uh, situation. Just a re- reported one in Addison County yesterday. Uh, a uh, uh, Some apple pickers over there apparently uh, have had some problems with transmission of the COVID-19 uh, virus, and we are uh, obviously hoping for the best for those folks and hoping that the outbreak in Addison County is uh, contained. But uh, we, this is clearly a bit of news, which reminds us that this thing is still very much among us and and is something we need to be vigilant in guarding against. So 244-1777 is the local number here in Waterbury. The toll-free number is one eight seven seven two nine one. 8255 and uh wondering uh what listeners out there think about are are, are they uh, uh relieved to see the president uh, leaving the hospital and heading back to the white house uh, does this mean that he's on the uh, uh, they tell us he's on the on the road to recovery uh we don't know exactly how long the the coronavirus will maintain itself in his body and uh, in a period during which there's concern that he could be contagious. So obviously he needs to be quarantined for a period of time uh, going forward. Uh, also, the impact of that on the current campaign with election day less than a month away, you don't want to be uh, in a sick bed if you're a someone seeking re-election to I office. You would want to be, I'm sure, out on the campaign trail. So it's a tough break for the president in terms of uh, just the timing of his contracting the the uh, coronavirus, and uh, we'll have to see uh, if it has uh, impact on the campaign and his ability to press his case. Uh, Another bit of news here that I just noticed, uh, Michelle Obama uh, is is out with a uh, new 24-minute video meant as a closing argument uh, for voters to turn out for Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. And she is uh, really uh, ripping into President Trump, uh, not uh, not not pulling any punches in her in her criticisms of him she basically says that the uh country has pretty much descended into chaos and that the president isn't up the current president isn't up to the job of uh re- resolving any of the major issues that uh, face the united states including uh as sort of as sort of example number 1 the coronavirus situation I do think that it's worth pointing out that that leadership does matter uh, in the, in handling the coronavirus. As I've mentioned a couple times here on the Dave Graham Show, the, uh, the the there's a big contrast in in style here uh, between two Republicans, our Governor Phil Scott and the President of the United States. Uh, and uh, one thing we can say, uh, there are other differences and maybe some other reasons for this, but one thing we can say is that if the United States had the same per capita death rate from coronavirus that Vermont has after seven months of the pandemic, we would be in a situation where the uh, the, the country would have seen about 30,000 deaths to date uh, as opposed to the as opposed to the more more than 200,000 that it has seen and that's a striking difference and is uh, I think really tells quite a story. Let's go to a uh, caller checking in with us Bill from Waitsfield. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Dave. 
A couple of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, This morning I had heard that that, uh, Donald Trump is still contagious, which sort of raises even more concerns about him, you know, going walking about the White House without a mask or even being back there. But uh, And uh, the other thing, and I'm I'm just wondering if it was you uh, talking with Ellen Ratner some time ago, where she was talking about, well, first of all, just some background is uh, she, among other things, is a spiritualist, I believe a spiritualist minister. Yeah. And that she spoke about on this on this show about uh, Donald Trump and what her people, being the dead people that she communicates with, mm-hmm. had, had, had told her that uh, he would not finish his term. He would die before the end of his term. Well, she didn't say that. She said he wouldn't finish it. Okay. Huh. But, uh, but was that you on this end of the line at that time? I think so. That yeah. sounds familiar yeah, to but, me. You know, it was just sort of a, you know something I had thought about. You know, yep. Back you know when I heard he was positive that that uh, you know and there hadn't been anything else that had come up in that period of time. But I just thought that was kind of a interesting coincidence anyway. Yeah, I, I must admit I'm a little bit skeptical about people's ability to talk to the dead and to get messages from them and have those messages turn out to be true and et cetera. I, I'm, I, you know, it's just maybe I'm wrong about all of this, but I, uh, I'm, count me as a skeptic on uh, this, this kind of uh, practice. Uh, I think that this, what the message is here is much clearer, which is that the president repeatedly put himself at risk uh, for months and uh, downplayed the need to wear a mask, frequently uh, didn't wear a mask. Uh, he would be in close quarters gatherings with a, a large number of people where he wasn't wearing a mask. They weren't maintaining their social distance. You think about the Amy Coney Barrett nomination uh, event uh, just a little over a week ago now, uh, and that is uh, widely reported to have been a possible sort of source for a whole series of coronavirus infections that have swept through uh, Trump's uh, inner circle and so on. That theory makes a lot more sense to me than oh, yeah. uh, something about... Uh, <laughs> no, I, I quite agree. I just, yeah. you know, I just re- I remembered the conversation. Yeah. And, uh, and just yeah. thought it was, you know, just, you know, wanted to call and you know, I, remind I, you of that <laughs> and the, you know, I, I, you know okay. other than that, yeah, the, yeah, I think, I think his... <laughs> Perhaps a, a you know, reasonable title now would be to call him the Vector in Chief. But, uh, the Vector in Chief. Yikes. Um, okay. Well, but, you know, there's <laughs> hundreds of people, and yeah, you, know, you, you saw the videos, and you know, of all these people that most of whom were unprotected. And the, the maybe the amazing thing is that they, you know, that they just didn't seem to care. Well, I think that there may be a general attitude at certain. It, certain levels of our society or certain sorts of people or within certain political classes that somehow they're immune from the things that affect normal folks and I I hope that the lesson if there's one to be taken from this episode is that uh, that's not the case and that people are uh, pretty much equal in the eyes of God and equal in the eyes of the coronavirus. How's that for a conclusion? Well, yeah, that's the, you know, of course, uh, what he's what he's been saying, 
you know, last last evening and so forth is that you know you can you can beat this, get out there and all that sort of thing. But we're not equal in the point that we all can't have a platoon of various uh, specialties of physicians. Yeah, that's true. Behind our lead guy, and, that, tur- that, you know, and turning all the power of the federal government over to our, you know, t- toward our uh, cure. Yeah, and somebody did point out, out online. I saw an interesting uh, remark from somebody that indicated that uh, just in the, heli- the initial helicopter ride from uh, the White House to Walter Reed Hospital the other day, the president uh, more than ate up what he paid in taxes in uh, t- both uh, 2016 and 2017, which was uh, 750 bucks each of those yeah. two years. <laughs> yep. So, alrighty, okay. Bill. Thank you for the call. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks a lot. Let's bring in our next guest. Uh, we have Jane Youngbear with us. She is with a terrific program called Destination Imagination, and it's all about enhancing the educations that our young folks get and uh, want to find out from uh, Ms. Youngbear all about it and uh, how it's doing in this age of the COVID-19. And uh, Jane Youngbear, I believe, is on the phone with us. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi there. Thanks for having me on the show. Glad to do it. So tell us about Destination Imagination. I know you've been involved in it for quite a number of years, so I think I have an expert here. (laughs) Well, um, it's a a great program for kids of all ages from preschool right up through college. And um, the idea of it is teamwork and creativity. So um, kids collaborate on a whole variety of different creative challenges some of which only take a few minutes, and others uh, that teams work on for a few months and it culminates in a presentation. Uh, there are teams all over the world, which is kind of amazing to think about, but the, it's also very, very localized. So activities take place, uh, you know, people's homes and schools um, and, and libraries. It can be almost anywhere that a team decides to gather. And uh, teams are just up to seven kids, and it could be two or three. And um, one of the core uh, principles of this is that all the ideas and all the work has to be done only by the team members. And uh, so adults can't tell the team how to solve the challenges. They Adults facilitate, and they can uh, teach skills, but that all the ideas uh, and the work come from the kids. That's really uh, an important aspect of this thing is to keep the adults the heck away from the uh, the table where the kids are working things out because yeah, I know uh, I, I remember uh, some school science projects where it seemed like there was a lot of parental help going on and uh, uh, so that 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 how how closely is that rule followed do you think is that a, uh, oh, is very it? closely very very closely and the kids take ownership of it really you know so if the adults start you know and it's really easy for an adult to start to slip up um, uh, and uh, the kids will say wait you can't tell us that you know or they'll stop the adults from uh, trying to you know tell them how to do it so Usually they catch them just in the nick of time. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> and and so, it, it's important so, to the kids. I'm sorry. Theirs. I said it's really important to the kids that it is their project. Too. Yeah. So, how large are the teams of kids who typically work on these projects? Um, anywhere from two or three uh, to seven kids on so each team. Seven is the maximum. Seven is the maximum per team, but, you know, a location like, let's say, it's uh, a school wants to start this, um, they can have, you know, multiple teams, and it can be different ages. 
Um, and so, are the teams typically so. sort of sponsored by schools, or do they spring up separately from schools out of the local folks? I think of scouting in that regard, or uh, how does that work? Yeah. Typically, um, we've had more participants uh, through schools and after-school programs in particular, but it really can be anywhere, and I do know of um, you know teams that there are a lot of homeschool teams. And um, there are teams that are, you know, they, they meet in a library. So it can really be anywhere that the team decides to gather. A lot of times schools or after-school um, programs are the ones that might sponsor it by paying the registration fee and providing a place to meet. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it's, like, really open to any um, community group as well as school group. Talk to me about a couple of the, your favorite projects that you've seen as, as someone involved in this uh, Destination Imagination program. Oh, okay. I've seen so many amazing things. I've seen, like, giant human hamster wheels, like, while a person was, like, standing inside of it and making it go with huh. little wheels at the bottom. <laughs> I've seen a, a human pendulum. Um, I've seen phenomenal improvisations where you just you know can't believe the amazing ideas that the kids would come up with on the spot um uh there are just so many um my my own kids did a whole bunch of things um oh there uh it's just um i i really let me think about that a minute i'll come back to it maybe with some other examples but um it's that's part of the joy of it though is to when we have our tournament which is a competition a very friendly competition it's really a festival of creativity where you can all watch each other and be inspired by each other and just see um incredible scenery and costumes and um just some of the the ideas um are are just uh and you can you can go online and see clips of of uh things that kids have done too there are just so many incredible things um, one um some of the challenges are really short and you know so they're not like these polished performances but uh one of the instant challenges the short ones that comes to mind is one that my well, my son's team did a long long time ago where they had to use some common objects like Draws and sticks and, you know, a little container and, like, a paper cup and things. And they had to create a device that lifted raisins, you know. So on the spur of the moment, they had, like, maybe three minutes to figure it out and a couple of minutes to move as many raisins from one place to another. And it was, like, really uh, fun for them to do and fun to watch. And so that was an example of, like, a short, instant challenge. Wow. So th- th- there are... There are time limits, so they'll get a, 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 a challenge there would have been figure out a way using these materials to move the raisins, say, from uh, the table to the paper cup or something like that. Yeah, something like that, or to, to lift it. How many could it lift without uh, collapsing in a certain period of time? Let me explain. There are two main types of challenge. One is like an instant challenge, and those are the ones that only take a few minutes. And they might be task-based, such as a raisin lifter, could be performance-based, which would just be an improvisation, um, you know, where maybe you're given some 
characters and a location and some kind of a um, a problem, you know, that that the characters have to face. Um, or it could be a combination uh, of things where you have to like make something and then use it in a performance. Um, and so that's one kind, instant challenge. The other kind is um, kind of a project-based uh, central challenge. And other than improvisation, it um, well, for all of the challenges, you work on it for a long, long period of time, like you know, a few months, for example, and you keep polishing it and, and making it um, more more interesting. And um, so, uh, with other than improvisation, it involves uh, what people often know as STEAM, which is engineering, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and the A is for the arts. So there's a challenge that's a technical one, scientific, fine arts, engineering, improvisation, and service learning. And there's also one called uh, for Rising Stars, which is an early learning challenge that's non-competitive. That's for the youngest kids. So in each of these challenges, teams have to um, invent something. So there's usually some kind of a product like that where they, they're making something that has to uh, accomplish a certain task. But they also use the arts and they uh, present what they have done in the context of a performance. The short skit that's about eight minutes long. Wow. Sounds like a lot of... Yeah, uh, wow. It's it, a lot of important challenges for the kids. They're learning lots of things in the process of responding to these challenges. You you are a chair of the board of, of the Vermont affiliate uh, of Destination Imagination. Is this uh, does this exist in every state? Is it a national group or a regional thing, or how does um, that work? Um, there are. I think most of the states have affiliates, and I think maybe at least fifteen different countries are participating right now. Um, wow. It changes a little bit every year, um, but it's pretty, um, you know, it's all over the world, which is very cool. Uh -huh. um, and uh, one other thing that the kids get to do that I should mention is they also, if they have their own, like, special talents or skills, they get to showcase that as part of the thing, too, part of what they do. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about sort of how the meets are are organized, et cetera, and we can do that some uh, after a brief break. We need to take here. We're going to hear a CBS newsman and a couple words from our sponsors, and we'll continue our conversation with Jane Young Youngbear of Destination Imagination on the other side. We'll be back shortly, folks. things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. 
We're back, and my guest is Jane Youngbear. She is chair of the Vermont Board of Destination Imagination. And, Jane, I promised that after the break I was going to try to get you to sort of walk us through the process here. When the, when the kids get their projects, uh, how are they first notified of what the challenges are, and then how much time do they have to work on the challenges? When do, Where do they present the results? Walk us through uh, what a typical uh, project works like from inception to uh to uh, the glory of whatever comes at the end. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, teams start forming in the fall, and so it's, it's pretty flexible as to when you start. Um, so teams, uh, so um, you gather, you know, there has to be at least one adult who's going to be a team manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, other adults can also help. And, you know, you can add people, like you might start with only maybe two or three to, when you register your team, and maybe, you know, if you, you add more kids into it later. But um, so kids would spend team meetings, which are typically, you know, an hour to maybe two hours. I would say definitely not more than an hour, hour and a half to start. Um, and uh, they, they'll do, like, team-building activities, uh, often kids want snacks, you know. <laughs> yep. There are a lot of kids that meet after school. It's kind of like it's a little, they have a little socializing time. But then they would spend some time working on um, a variety of instant challenges. And uh, uh, when teams register, we give them all kinds of resources. And you can make up your own as well, but there's there are plenty of resources to help uh, teams to have the activities and, and uh, materials that they need. And they also would start to explore what the different challenges are in all the categories that I mentioned. And they, um, you know, so they would learn more about, you know, and they could identify through like a little survey, what are their strengths as a a team? What are their interests? You know, and they don't have to all be interested in the same thing. There may be some kids that love to perform and other kids, you're just not going to get them out on that stage no matter what, but they might be terrific builders or, um, you know, any, they maybe make costumes or whatever that, that is. And all. so they'll be learning more about each other and what, what they enjoy. And, uh, over a period of, uh, a few weeks, a month maybe, they would decide on which central challenge they want to do. Is it technical, scientific, arts, service learning, uh, engineering, or improv? Um, I think I mentioned them all. And uh, so then they, as time goes on, they would start to do more research for that, figure out what they need to do to solve that challenge, um, and to and and every team will do it uniquely. It's not like there's any one solution. There's no wrong ideas. There's no one way to do it. It's um, a creative process to figure out um, how they could. Um, to do, um, you know, what the challenge is asking them to do. And all throughout, they would continue to do instant challenges, um, perhaps some other fun team-building activities as well. And uh, so the closer you get to a tournament, the more you start to refine and rehearse. You know, there may be a script, it may be improvisational, and, you know, maybe they're working really hard to build their in- an invention of some kind. So there's a lot of work that goes into it at every meeting, um, and um, typically in a, in a usual year, we would have a create we would have our state tournament in March. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, guess what was happening last March? Uh, yes. Everything was shutting down, and it was a really hard decision to cancel 
the tournament because the Albies team that started as a normal year, so everybody had worked in person, they'd been doing all this stuff, and they really, a lot of them just said, oh, no, please, can't we come and present it? And we had to make that hard decision to, to cancel it. And, uh, wow. Hmm. And also that happened uh, all over the world, basically. And I have to give a lot of credit to uh, DI Incorporated, and we're all nonprofit from top to bottom, but uh, DI Headquarters, um, they canceled the global finals, which is a combination of you know all the teams that are in first place get to compete at the global finals. I can come back to that. But anyway, they created on very short notice a virtual global finals. So all of the teams that had been working, you know, they didn't have to um, qualify to participate. Anybody, any team all over the world that wanted to could participate in this virtual global event and showcase their um, their challenge that they did. Wow! And uh, so yeah, so um, and uh, they they did award. Um, uh, well, I don't know if they did trophies, but anyway, they they had um, they did. Uh, have competition for people in the different challenges. And also families could do like a non-competitive thing. Uh, so there's like videos from all over the world of these amazing uh, creative things that, that people did. So, and so that was, that was a very atypical uh, challenge year. Yeah, in a normal year, uh, do the kids, say teams from Vermont, travel to some uh, remote place in the world for the finals if they make the finals? The global finals are in the United States. Uh, usually, like at the at our March tournament, and there are like affiliates all over the place that um, have a tournament in like February, March, April. Mm-hmm. So how it usually works is uh, so kids would uh, present that. Like at our state tournament, for example, uh, kids would present their their central challenge, and they would also participate in an instant challenge that they've never seen before. One of the short ones. Like yep. They have no idea what it's going to be. They go in a room, it's like top secret, and it's very exciting, and they can't tell anybody about it afterwards because somebody else might have the same one, and then it wouldn't be um, an experience for them that's, um, that they didn't prepare for. So anyway, they, they uh, do an instant challenge, and that is part of their final score. So you have to be able to do well thinking on your feet as well as having a polished product and performance. Wow. So that's all combined. First place winners in every age group and every um, every challenge category. The first place winners for those would be eligible to go, go to the global finals. Um, it was in Tennessee for many years. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was in Kansas City, and um, so I guess we'll see what this year brings. Um, this year, what's very interesting is because. Um, of things still being shut down in different in different places, all the challenges have been written so the teams can solve them virtually. So some teams might be meeting in person, some teams might meet online. You know, they might have like Zoom meetings or who knows. And maybe there's a combination. Um, and depending on how things go and what's open or closed, uh, we may decide to have a live tournament as we usually have done, except for last year. We may have a virtual tournament of some kind, or maybe there'll be some combination. We those do, we haven't made those decisions yet, but um, yep. in any case, teams are forming now and uh, starting to work together. Wow, so, uh, hey, we'll be hey, flexible about how it plays out. 
Listeners, I'm wondering, uh, are there folks out there who have participated in Destination Imagination? And uh, call us up and tell us about your experiences. If you have, 244-1777 is the local number here in Waterbury. Uh, 1-877-291-8255. And uh, this sounds like a really uh, interesting and cool program. And I'm wondering, uh, has it grown in recent years, uh, Jane Youngbear? Um, I don't have all the statistics for that. Um, there are a lot of ebbs and flows. We really, um, been a little small recently. Um, and we'd like to grow the program and have more kids from all over Vermont. Um, we, uh, will go to you and or meet with you online to start teams anywhere in the state. We've, we're happy to do like free workshop. Uh, you know, we'll go as the northeast, from the northeast kingdom to, uh, Bennington or Brattleboro. Um, in fact, we have an event coming up that's open to the public in Moortown on October 15th um, from 4 to 5.30. We're doing a free information center, and uh, whoever attends will have a chance to do some instant challenges. It'll be, um, you know, be observing COVID safety, of course. It's going to be outdoors in a big tent, and um, but, you know, we'll have ways that each, you know, small groups can do things without having to all, you know, handle a bunch of the same materials, and but we'll make it fun, and you'll get information about how to start teams. Wow, and of course, uh, added to the challenges that you normally get with Destination Imagination, things like do it all virtually, do it all while observing well, COVID rules, yep. <laughs> et cetera. Yep. Yep. Yikes! Uh, so, how uh, how has that worked out in terms of just? Uh, do you feel like that the program is able to maintain its strengths in 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 response to these sort of institutional challenges, or do you feel like it's really been pretty rocked by uh, this experience that everybody has been going through with the COVID crisis? Well, um, I think, you know, we're just starting out for this season, and I think we're very hopeful that um, uh, it can be a great experience for kids to do this um, in whatever form they do it. It shook us up last March for sure because, um, you know, not only was it a disappointment to all the teams that had been working so hard and couldn't come together to celebrate, um, it also financially affected us because um, we're nonprofit, and really, you know, our, our main income is from uh, a tournament fee. It's a very modest fee, really, but um, and you know, souvenir store and uh, things, some things like that. So without the tournament, it really hurt us. And we're in the process of looking for grants um, and you know to try and uh, boost us a little bit. But also, yep. um, the main thing is to get lots of teams who can participate. And that's that's our goal. Is we want kids to have this experience. That is that is the uh, bottom line for an organization like this. Uh, my guest is Jane Youngbear. She is Vermont Chair of Destination Imagination, a really cool program for young people of uh, all of those younger ages. I guess from you said preschool up through uh, college. Yes. Wow. So kids, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, teams generally are formed among similar age groups. So, you know, you might have a team that's like, you know, maybe five, six, and seven-year-olds, maybe, you know, an elementary team with like, you know, 10 and 11-year-olds, you know, a high school team could be, you know, you might have, uh, you know, 
sophomores and through seniors. It could be any combination. Teams would compete. You can combine, like let's say there, you might have siblings that are on the same team and they would compete at the level of the oldest kid on the team. So, um, but that's not a big deal, you know. Anyway, it's open to everybody. Yeah. And how many kids in Vermont participate in an average year? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think maybe we had 20 teams last year. Uh, we've had as many as uh, 50 in recent years. Uh, we're hoping to grow it. We'd really like to have more than that. But um, it can, no matter how many or how few, the experience for the kids is really the what it's all about, you know, and the process is just as important as... Um, the product and the you know the numbers it's like for every kid it's it's a great experience um i think you know if it's you know maybe there are some kids that don't enjoy as much about this but my for i would say the vast majority of kids who try it really love it and want to come back year after year are there other states where the destination imagination program is more uh embedded in the, in the educational culture i mean i can imagine that in in, oh, in some yeah. states you know 4h is stronger than than in other states is the same yeah. thing true here yeah i mean texas has huge numbers um not just because they're a big state because they're a big state they're like wyoming's a big state but it doesn't uh, it probably doesn't have as many teams as we do um it really depends a lot of um locations have taken this on as part of a school curriculum because it really it's so educational um, it's project based learning which a lot of uh, schools are, re- are really getting behind so it totally can be part of the curriculum and we'd love to see more uh, schools do that and I think in other uh, states there may be more of that so but again it could be homeschool it could be you know just any community group um and in fact you mentioned 4-h a 4-h group could do a destination imagination challenge same thing with scouts i think the service learning challenge is absolutely made for uh, a group like that and that would be a great collaboration um you know the service learning uh challenge takes on uh, a real community need that they identify and uh, this year, they, they have to present a video presentation that includes a podcast and a commercial, and it has to include a cliffhanger and a quirky character. So they get, <laughs> they're addressing an actual need, but they're also bringing in some other kinds of creativity to enhance the project. A cliffhanger with a quirky character. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, and kids take this and run with it. You know, it's like adults kind of go, what? And, you know, they're just off they go and they come up with amazing things. That That is really something. I, I, it sounds like it's something that kids should want to get involved with. Uh, you know, I mean, the other big sort of slice of competition I, I would imagine that you get, and, and this is true of many other youth programs, is just, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh, screen time. And, and yes. so many kids are spending so much time playing video games and doing other stuff like that. 
that it is cutting into a time that maybe they formally devoted to things like scouting or, in your case, destination and imagination. What kind of an impact are you seeing there? Well, um, I, I think that uh, families are looking for alternatives to screen time for sure, and right now that's difficult um, and different places, of course, and different families interpret this differently to what extent they're they're willing to have their kids be and you know interact with other kids in person and be in school and all that the other where i thought you were going with like uh some of the competition for time is that there are so many amazing activities that kids do outside of school um so i think sometimes families are hard-pressed to say oh well, we're already doing this and this and this and this i don't know if we can do this too um, so that's that's another factor. But what I love about Destination Imagination is that it addresses so many aspects of of uh, you know exploring and learning, and um, you know, and the kids are learning together, whether it's in person and or online. Um, I just think it's uh, a great way to go. Um, do do kids tend to uh, go on to uh, careers uh, to higher education and so on based on some of the projects they're in getting engaged with here? Oh yeah, and there's all kinds of um, testimonials, if you will, and uh, online about how uh, this has helped them with, with careers. And one of the things that people talk about is uh, besides like maybe engineering skills and, and that type of more concrete learning is uh, their interpersonal skills, learning how to work with a group, learning how to collaborate, all of the teamwork, which is so important. It's really the, at the heart of this program is uh, collaboration and communication. And so a lot of uh, people who have gone through the program um, are, you know, think back on that as being one of the things that has helped them a lot in life. Um, and there are a lot of very enthusiastic uh, alums. Uh, we have two young people on our board currently who did the program as kids, and huh. now uh, they value it so much that they now are on the board and they are challenge masters and, uh, you know, are in charge of certain things with the tournament, and they've been just so so valuable on our board bring that perspective and uh, we really are grateful to them are the challenge masters maybe you already uh, refresh me though uh, a lot of information here the uh, are the challenge masters the one who actually come up with the challenges then create those no no uh, there was a writing team at uh, the uh, at DI incorporated mm-hmm. um, and uh, so they are, you know they're like years in advance they're coming up with um, what the challenges might be. So, okay. You know, team of writers. But uh, Challenge Master at uh, each affiliate level, it's like um, the, that person is becomes kind of the expert on that particular challenge. And at the tournament, they would be managing uh, the, the tournament site and the appraisers because kids are scored by um, appraisers when they mm-hmm. go to the tournament. With the emphasis on praise, it's very positive. They get positive feedback, and yes, it's, there's score and 
competition and all, but um, it really um, we wanted to be a, 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 a very positive experience for the kids and, you know, not make them feel like they've done things wrong. But what did they do well? We look for that, you know. And, sure. Um, yeah, so that's the emphasis. So anyway, that's, does that answer your question about Challenge Masters? Yeah, I, I, I think it does. So the uh, the challenges for this year, can you tell us what any any of them are that the Vermont kids are just starting on now? Um, okay, well, I mentioned the service learning one. Um, in the technical challenge, you want me to just kind of quickly run down some of the bullet points of, of the, what they are? Um, Give us a couple of examples. We're actually almost out of time, so yeah, I don't know if okay. I have to right. squeeze in the whole Here's list. A scientific challenge. Produce a video presentation that tells a story about a scientific law that is bent and or broken. Show how the scientific law is bent and or broken. Include an expert and a witness. Use documentary techniques to tell the story in the style of a documentary film. The engineering challenge, they, uh, they do something in the style of a video game with an adventurer who goes on a quest and has a special ability. The fine arts challenge, they, uh, create an original music video, um, design and build co- a costume, um, service learning challenges that podcast, uh, the early learning challenge, um, they're going to create and present a story. It's called Critter's Big Adventure. Create and present a story about a critter who goes on a big adventure. Wow. So um, there's really a range of stuff here for all, many, many different interests that kids might have. So that's a tremendous right. thing. Hey, uh, we, we are about out of time, Jane Youngbear. I really appreciate you joining me this morning to talk about this terrific program, Destination Imagination. And uh, thank you so much. I really, It's uh, good talking with you. Thank you. Alrighty. Hey, that's going to about do it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM. Stay tuned for our special coverage of uh, Governor Scott and other state officials in their regular COVID-19 news conference. And we'll talk to you all again tomorrow morning. Have a good afternoon, everybody.